to the Urban Planners Podcast, hosted by Gigi the Planner. This podcast is about all things urban planning related and otherwise. In this setting, we'll discuss the ins and outs of the planning field. We'll even delve into some very controversial topics involving the role planners have to take in their everyday lives and jobs. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. This This is Gigi the Planner. Welcome to episode 19 of the Urban Planners Podcast. In today's episode, I will be talking to Jordan Exantis and Krishana Newton, and we will be discussing being biracial in the planning field as a continuation of the Black Urbanist Speak Out series. Hope you all enjoy. Thank you, Krishana and Jordan, for joining the Urban Planners Podcast. I'm glad to have both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Awesome. So what is your planning story? How did you get into the field of planning? I was introduced to planning by one of my childhood friend's father, who was in a PhD program in planning, and he kind of was able to help me. I I didn't know much about it, and I just kind of uh, happened upon it, and I enjoyed it. I liked the professors and the subject matter. Study lots of different disciplines and still relate it back to my core curriculum. Um, kind of never look back from there. Okay, I guess for me, it's probably because I grew up in foster care and I used to question about the location of where my group homes were going. And I kind of became an advocate in foster care for about housing and housing policy and how that works into public transit and where the location of our group homes were. And then I kept going on this track unknowingly. And then when I got to college, I noticed that the same things were occurring in university planning sector. And that was the intersection of like public private practices. And then I just kept going, got my undergraduate in sociology and urban studies, and then decided to get my master's because I really wanted to focus on the political side of it. Okay, Krishana, so you have been in the planning field for a few years now. What does your day-to-day work entail? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) No, I work directly with community engagement in the city of Atlanta. So I work with 25 neighborhood planning units that are around the greater part of Atlanta geographically. And I focus on community engagement, planning initiatives from there. I do proactive rezoning for land development. So that's been interesting and um, working for the legislator. So kind of day-to-day operations like that, some administratively driven and some legislatively driven. Cool, cool, that really sounds awesome. So Jordan, you have been in the planning field for quite some time now. How are you currently enjoying your work as a planner? So right now I work with Prince George's County Department of Parks and Recreation, Park Planning and Development uh, Division. And essentially I work as the lead planner for the Northern section of the county. So my work in park planning and development encompasses everything from planning to land acquisition, design development, feasibility, all the way through construction. And while I don't do all of those functions myself per se, I'm often managing or coordinating certain parts of those processes, coordinating the community engagement, 
doing the updates with council members and, and generally being a facilitator between the various other departments, engineering, landscape, architecture, so on and so forth. So that's what I'm doing in my day-to-day -day work. It's interesting to me because it enables me to do a lot of different things. A lot of people think parks and rec and they think, oh, you build playgrounds, but it really deals with a lot of far-reaching issues from our partnerships with the schools and, and how school facilities are developed and and those recreational spaces and, and programming for schools and getting kids from schools to your extracurriculars and all the way to during times of COVID when, when a lot of people shut down, our facilities are the ones that are being utilized and we've been on the front lines of trying to figure out how to adapt and adjust to uh, the quote unquote new normal. So how do we make our system safe for people to use? People are out on the trails, people are using the, the parks, they want access to things that we're reopening such as the the fishing areas and the tennis courts and the golf places so very varied work and i think as a player that's kind of what you become accustomed to doing is wearing a lot of different hats and just kind of being able to tackle whatever challenge you may be presented with awesome so cool so let's delve into the topic of the hour of being biracial in the planning field so as many of my listeners know, this is the Black Urban Pickout series that I'm currently hosting. This is the fourth episode. And my two guests here are both biracial. So I would like for you guys to talk about that. So the first question is, what is a common misconception about being biracial? I think a lot of times because there are groups, the various ethnic groups have so much like entrenched culture I think a lot of people don't really have a frame of reference for biracial people per se, and if they do, they may not necessarily understand the unique experiences that you face when you're in that position. But I think more so than anything else, I look at my identity and the experiences that I've had growing up with having one foot in, in two different worlds, and really three, because my Black experience was an immigrant experience. It wasn't an African-American experience. I grew up in a Caribbean culture. So I grew up Caribbean culture, white culture, and then mainstream African-American culture is the group that adopted me, but was never really rooted in the same traditions that I shared. So I, I learned how to be a bridge between various communities. I learned how to understand different languages without speaking them. And I think in planning, that's really helped me because in planning, so much of it is about communication, listening, consensus building, helping people to tell their stories and, and helping other people understand how to empathize with different stakeholders. And I think more so than a misconception, I think a lot of people just don't see the other side of things. And I've always seen it as my position to help to build a bridge and in terms of understanding, I think there's certain conversations that I've had to have just by virtue of who I am that most people never consider. The, that tough work of learning how to accept a racist family member or learning how to see things from a different perspective, it helps you be able to talk to community. It helps you to empathize with people. And I think that a lot of people, they see me and they may say, Liz is light-skinned guy, he, he has, he's highly educated, he has certain privileges, so on and so forth. They may discredit your experience in, in terms of dealing with racial issues. But like the people in my family know I'm a lot 
more radical than a lot of people simply because I actually came face to face with certain things that other people never really have an understanding of. Like, what does it mean to have uh, racial tension within immediate blood family members? What does it mean to come up in a society where people are making certain comments about your family dynamic, your family structure, and the challenges associated with that? What does it mean to be ashamed of part of who you are because you understand the legacy of what it means to be black in America? And that's the people you most closely identify with. But at the same time, you also have this other part of yourself, which is part of the other power structure. How do you reconcile that? It's, it's a lot of things. So I think a lot of times the misconception is that you're just a black guy or he's just like, it's you, your identity is always kind of watered down in some sense, you know, and it takes a certain person to really actually engage with you and go a little deeper before people can really understand you. So I think the misconception really happens with me and my experience from an unwillingness to engage in difficult conversations, something that we're seeing in society today. I mean, we had this moment of reckoning. People are just now realizing, oh, we have an issue. And, and they're openly willing to talk about it. I'm like, oh, but I, I was like Colin Kaepernick when I was 15. You know what I mean? I didn't stand for the anthem. I was like, man, this, this is crazy madness going on in this place. And people didn't understand that on either side. I feel like I was that way because I could see so much hypocrisy going on being stuck in the middle of this divide. And I think it's an important perspective to, to put out there. Thank you for that. And just for you, I was just thinking about the fact that I don't know how it is for most other biracial people, because I'm pretty sure that most biracial people probably identify to one side maybe more than the other. And I don't know if that depends on like how you grew up, like if you may have had a one parent household and that parent that raised you may have been white or black or whatever other race you may be biracial. And if you identify with that, because maybe that was the parent that raised you versus someone else. But yeah, that's a really good perspective on that. And I don't know if I want to delve into this a little bit more, but why do you identify more with black than so with white? I mean, it really just comes down to love for me. In America, we have the one drop rule. It's been that way. When I travel to other countries, people see you differently. They'll automatically say, oh, you're this or you're that. You know, when I go to Africa or I go to Haiti or I go to anywhere, they, they know that you're something different. But in America, it never mattered. From the time I was a small kid, I learned that people were scared of me. I learned the same things that Black men in this country learned. I went through the police harassment. I had guns pulled on me, all that stuff. So it's like, the people who you most closely identify with and that you get love from, that you get support from, that becomes your community. And for me, I had that experience of growing up as a black kid in America and, and having my friends who I relied on. But I also had the experience of growing up in a family where certain white family members rejected me and the black family would give me the shirt off their back. It's just a complete opposite in terms of what it means to have familial love. So when you're feeling rejected or disrespected on this side, and then you feel in love on this side, it's, it's only natural that you're going to gravitate to the love because what kid wants to deal with that kind of pain and hurt and rejection that comes along with that. So, yeah, but then at the same time, you know, within the black community, 
people are always looking at you a little different. Like, oh, this guy's half white. He's kind of soft. He just so you you actually become tough. Like, oh yeah, what's up? What's going on? It it, it creates all kind of different issues when you're forming your identity. And and I think that's why a lot of people, fair complected, whatever the case may be, they go through that. It's like they find themselves trying to find themselves like it's they're trying to discover those roots that may not be as apparent for some people who just it just comes with the territory everything they did everything they ever lived was black they live and breathe black they mumble earth wind and fire in their sleep i didn't have all of those experiences so it's like i had to create it for myself and that way you just gravitate towards what feels natural and you take it from there but at the same time I think as I've grown older, I appreciate the other side too, simply because at a certain point you have to learn to recognize others' humanity. And in that process, you begin to peel back the layers and you can delve into some other aspects of reality, which is important too, because I feel like that makes it easier to do that work of building bridges and doing those things that I say, because I'm not uncomfortable around any type of person. I've never had a comfort zone per se, so I will go anywhere and be comfortable. That's why my career took me to different countries, took me to the Indian reservation, took me to all these places where a lot of people are like, well, you went to work where? South Memphis? Like, you wasn't scared? Like, I'm not, no, I'll go anywhere. Like, it doesn't matter to me because I'm able to see people's humanity. So it's a double-edged sword like anything else. It's all about how you deal with it. But I think at the end of the day, Black people... I've been in many countries all over the world. There's some of the warmest, most welcoming people that you'll find. And when you're going through difficult situations, that's what you're going to gravitate to, to is that love. I can understand that even though both sides of my family are Black, I do gravitate to one side more than the other because of the love that I feel from the one side. So I can relate to you on that aspect. So for you, Krishana, what are some common misconceptions about being biracial? I think the biggest one is that we're neutral on the subject matter when it comes to Black Lives Matter. And I think that most biracial kids, even though we struggle with this polarized identity that society has placed upon us, a lot of us do have the principles and the grounding and the values to understand what it means to pursue a decision-making that is driven behind a lot of purpose and that's gonna impact the lives in our majority of cities. So like for me, I don't like when, for example, like in the legislative process, a lot of times us as planners, we don't have the avenue to not only advocate, but we're set in the procedures and the processes that have naturally disfranchised the majority of our communities. A good example is to look at zoning and how muni codes are written across many municipalities. So I think that's one of the biggest things that we're neutral on it. And like for me being interracial, I don't like to say that we're neutral. I like to ground myself with reasoning, respect, and love, much like what Jordan said, because him and I have similar backgrounds. I grew, I was born in the Caribbean too. So there's this 
this an anointment over me of me knowing my identity and not saying that, oh, it's about blackness, but about being around people and about being around love. And then when I came to America and I grew up in a foster care system, because I grew up in a black household, I learned about black Americans and I was raised in a black community. So I learned to understand that in a deeper sense that I never had when I was in the Caribbean, because I didn't have to, I walked around, we're all enjoying each other, enjoying each other's company, enjoying the city, and then you come to America, and there's these different dynamics, so, I mean, it still boils back down to having the willingness as a planner to not sit in the room, and you can obviously see that there are conversations happening outside the place that could affect how you analyze, or how this might impact a potential neighborhood or things like that. So um, I think a common misconception is that we stand neutral in subject matters, especially when it comes to the, like black, historically black communities. I mean, I work in the city of Atlanta and there's not a day in time that I don't have something to say about how this is gonna impact my district or the area that I represent or the people that I'm supposed to be speaking on behalf of as a planner and I have to, feel empowered to have the voice to speak up about it, but I also know that I am able to switch both sides because sometimes a developer will come in and they never walk the path with a black man. They never walk the path of a black woman. And it's my job to make them to see a different side and see not only the humane side of it, but understand the impact of the overall big picture of it. Awesome. And I like that perspective because I'm pretty sure that a lot of people don't actually think about that. So how has being biracial impacted you in the planning field, if at all? Being biracial has impacted me to speak more out about advocacy and being able to be heard when my peers can't be heard. A lot of the women that I work around are Black women and they don't feel heard in the planning world. And they give me the opportunity to speak out for them because they can't and I'm their support system and then they're my support system. So we're able to move the needle forward in the planning direction that it should be. That's my per like personal experience is working around black men and black women in the field and having them mentor me and one we talk about controversial issues, we talk about race and theory of planning, but we also talk about just being human and planners and be creating a support system for each other. So sometimes I'm speaking on their behalf or they're speaking on my behalf and sometimes we meet each other halfway, which is a nice intersection between the public, private, and nonprofit worlds. I can't really speak to specifically things that my identity impacts in terms of my work. What I can say is that after having my first job in the private sector, which didn't really align with my core principles as a person or as a planner, all the work that I've done has been in places where the population that I'm serving is majority minority and my work environment is majority minority. And I think that I'm much more comfortable in that type of environment simply because of the trauma that I faced dealing with white people, speaking very frankly. And for me, it's important to work in communities where I felt like I could make a difference and where I felt like I'd be valued and appreciated. 
So the places I've spent the bulk of my career are Red Lake Indian Reservation, Memphis, Tennessee, and now Prince George's County, Maryland. There's some of the most heavily African-American parts of the country. And, and the Indian Reservation is almost, what, 99%, you know, indigenous population. So I've always felt that I want to do work that helps to, quote unquote, unwrite the wrongs of history. We learn about all the things that happened in the history of the United States from genocide of the indigenous people through slavery and so on. If you're really concerned with community development, you want to do something to mitigate those past disasters. And so the work that I've done has been trying to do that, trying to make quality of life better for the most marginalized of populations. And I think that sensitivity and that passion is derived from my identity and the heightened sensitivity that I have to issues of race. Awesome. Awesome. I understand that. Honestly, this is like a lesson for me what you guys both are saying, because I can't really, you know, stand in your shoes, but um, I do understand where you guys are coming from. So Jordan, you spoke on this a little bit, but being biracial in the planning field, do you find yourself code switching with other colleagues and outsiders in your work environment? Hmm. That's funny. I think maybe early in my career, I, I had some moments where I found myself trying to fit in, but I, I really am the kind of person that walks to the beat of my own drum. I've had to be self-reliant because I've always been different. And so I know that even if I put on a suit and do whatever, people are still going to have certain perception of me based on my personal politics, based on the things I say and how I say them. So I learned to stand in my own truth. And I think that ultimately that has led people to respect me, but also in some instances, it's created obstacles and challenges and how I approach my work because I'm unapologetically myself. I believe in the planning process. I believe in doing things the right way. And when you work in public planning, a lot of times you see people trying to either circumvent the planning process or don't even understand the process well enough to understand why they need it or why they need to do it. And you run into issues. Why are you having so many meetings? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And it's like, you just have to kind of hold to your guns and just do things in the right way. And that's kind of how, how I've always approached things. Because at the end of the day, even if you're whatever race you are, trying to do advocacy planning, trying to work on the behalf of betterment of communities, a lot of times you're going to stand in, in confrontation with the interests of capital. And that when you combine the political aspects of our work, it can create some combustible situation. So you really have to be savvy in learning how to navigate politically, how to leverage, how to narrate, how to provide people with solutions that everyone can kind of be okay with. And I think all those different things that we've talked about in terms of identity and how those things affect you, it, it prepares you for, for those difficult conversations and stepping outside of yourself to try to, you know, build consensus around ideas and, and do things in a more um, equitable way where you can delegate power and decision-making and things of that nature. Cool. So, Krishan, do you find yourself co-switching? In the beginning, yes. I think I have always struggled with 
this whole colorized identity because I grew up so attached to my Caribbean identity. And it wasn't really until my father, who was a black man, who obviously the occurrence with police brutality and stuff, but being a witness and to see how he was so mistreated really kind of, I guess, guided me towards a better identity that made me feel more confident. But I don't think that it dictates my due diligence as a planner at all. I believe in the planning process and I believe that planners have good backgrounds, diverse backgrounds, inclusive backgrounds, and they do make very good decision maker. Are we all the power or the main, the hierarchy? No, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I can say that 100% I stay consistent in who I am and just try to follow my truth. And I also believe in learning what has happened and the reoccurrences of why things go on in a cycle and things like that, especially with my sociology background. I believe in understanding the fundamentals of how society functions, how people function in society, which influences how we plan for our cities. And I definitely go hands in hand with Jordan that there's always gonna be a conflict when capital is at the basis of something. And I think it's very important as planners to understand how economics really work on our day-to-day -day job duties and how that influences different types of decision-making and just do the best that we can. In the beginning, I probably found myself code switching because I went from growing up in the Caribbean where I knew myself, I knew my feeling, everything. And then when my father passed away, my biological father passed away, I went into foster care and the foster care made me realize the social detriments and the racial dynamics around me and the racial tension. So I felt that because it was my home value that was being placed into a social value that I didn't really understand. And I had to realize yeah, I'm always going to be a good person at the end of the day, but there might be conflicts within myself internally or externally that sometimes I don't always know how to address. That's where I would rely on my community or my peers to have deepened conversations about how would I address this issue? How do I approach this? Is this the right way to say something? And it all goes back to communication, language. And the more you experience life and the more you learn and make yourself vulnerable and put yourself in an uncomfortable position, the more you feel comfortable in your identity. So right now, I feel great. <laughs> Maybe when I was a little bit of a younger planner, I was like, oh, should I have said that? Or... Maybe I should have done something differently. Maybe I'm not speaking on behalf of them in certain aspects. Maybe I'm missing something. But the more you grow in a planner, the more you learn to understand and respect what we do as a profession, the more you don't have to question your identity or what you do every day on a day-to-day -day basis. Because then you could just own up to it and be like... Yeah, maybe I would approach that different five years ago, or maybe you that would give you an opportunity to lead a project forward with somebody else who's never done something or is not willing to get out of their comfort zone. You're like, eh, I can do that for you. I got you type of situation. So right now, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Before, a little bit, <laughs> a little imbalance there. <laughs> Thank you for that. And I mean, thank both of you guys for your perspectives on that, because I'm pretty sure a lot of people, biracial or not, 
code switch when they get in certain rooms, certain instances, and certain scenarios. So thank you for your perspectives on that. So what injustices have you guys experienced as a planner based on your race? Like, do you guys have any particular story you want to tell, a short story? I would say, like, when I started working with the city of Atlanta, I really struggled with learning to understand the Black identity of the city of Atlanta. The city of Atlanta has so many nicknames. It's so unique, but the biggest one is, like, the Black Mecca. And I was in the process of being like a younger planet and learning to understand what the city of Atlanta has made for themselves. How did they get this Black Mecca identity? And I was at work one day and going about the normal day, talking to my peers, a planning technician, a plan reviewer, and then an administrative assistant, all generationally or all different, all racial background, two beautiful black women and then me in an intersectionality of being a woman of color. And we're having a conversation about cultural backgrounds and cultural competencies. And one of my colleagues made a comment towards Caribbean background that was just wrong. The way she said it, the way she handled it was very inappropriate. And it wasn't directly towards me but it was directly towards the culture and the identity that the Caribbean has versus being an African-American in America and I was offended and then my colleague was also offended by the way she handled it as a Black American woman and for us during that time period we just addressed the issue by saying hey you know we both didn't feel comfortable in the comment that you made. Her husband is Caribbean, so she understood from a household dynamic and I understood from a background dynamic. So we were able to address the issue by saying, hey, maybe in the future, we make comments about like Caribbeaners or island people that come from an immigrant background. Maybe you should say it this way or ask another question because it wasn't really forthcoming to us. And additionally, we had to address the issue in front of developers and builders that were in the office. So her comment was not a comment that was soft-spoken. It was a comment loud and disruptive in the workplace, which did not just make us as her colleagues feel uncomfortable. It made the atmosphere around us uncomfortable. So we didn't address it right then and there. We kind of let bygones be bygones. And then we pulled her to the side later and had a private conversation with her about her racial comments towards Caribbeaners, basically. Long story short. (laughs) And I don't name drop or use directives towards it, but it was about culture competency. Basically, how do you angle yourself for other Black Americans to understand Caribbean mentality or Caribbean principles and values? That was the whole directive behind it. It's hard for me to to pinpoint stuff that I say is distinct racism, although I think intuition will tell you when it is. It's hard to ascribe it to one specific thing. I can say that, like most Black people, I've had times where people discredit my opinions or blatantly ignore me. I've had times where people 
all those little past, like, kind of subtly racist comments, like, oh, where did you come up with that idea? Or that's such a smart question. And I've dealt with all that kind of stuff. Oh, you're so articulate, or you're so this. People being surprised at your intelligence. People not inviting you to meetings because they know that you might say certain things. People making comments about your hair and facial hair. I used to wear long dreadlocks, and that created issues for me. People making comments. There's numerous things. I think the only thing that I I could really categorize as racism that actually bothers me is I feel like I kind of got to the point in my career where the powers that be were comfortable with me being like the top level staff person, but they weren't comfortable with me being in a position to actually impact the way decisions were made or, or managing people and things of that nature. And I feel that was because how I position myself in a place of work is I understand my value and how to build leverage and how to, you know, using the community as, as a cornerstone. You develop those relationships and you establish trust in certain things. You become integral to the process. So you, you can kind of build leverage within your organization. So they understand like, Hey, if you circumvent this process, you run into trouble. If you don't engage with the community, you have issues, so you need that person. But understanding it's like sometimes they see you as an obstacle or something they have to do to you know, do the process, but they don't necessarily believe in the process. So I can say some of that is racial-based, and some of it is just like a broader issue with society. I think about what's happened in recent months with the, the civil unrest following George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. And even though I work in a majority black county and the staff of my organization is probably 40% black, it was radio silence during that time from the leadership. And, and I thought about it because when COVID hit, there was so much information coming out. Oh, we care about your mental health. We want to make sure you're okay. This is what you can do to stay safe. Hey, everyone, we got your back all these nice emails and reassuring notices. And then when this thing happened, it was like, they didn't say nothing. And I was losing my mind because I'm like seeing what's going on on social media. I'm going to the protests in DC, which were crazy in those early days. And I'm like seeing all this stuff. I'm like, yo, y'all not going to say nothing? What's going on? And I ended up writing an open letter to the whole office because I was like, look, how can we we serve a black community and w- this kind of thing is going on right under our nose and y'all not saying anything. We just going to continue to to let this be the, the elephant in the room. Like we got to talk on this. And I mentioned all those things that we've talked about on this call, cultural competency, our obligations as planners to the, the code of ethics and things of that nature and why we can't be silent at a time like this. And that email prompted people to act. It was like, okay, now we're going to have a conversation. Now leadership is, is writing things and coming up with a resolution of Black Lives Matter and this, that, and the third. But if, if no one had said anything, I don't know if it would have been addressed. And I think because I work generally in majority minority places, a lot of times we're not even aware of the racism that we're facing because it's stuff that we're putting on ourselves. It's like, it's not even conscious. It's just like, it's been conditioned that way. 
So it's like these black communities, they're trying to develop. They're trying to get somebody in the door to build something. Their concern isn't like, we ain't trying to build no more affordable housing. We trying to catch up. So they're taking all these bad deals, trying to get a little piece of the pie, not recognizing y'all getting played. Y'all getting taken advantage of. Y'all signing up these tax deals, giving away your money for 10, 20, 30 years, all kind of stuff that's happening just to try to get a foothold in the rat race. So I see the racism every day, but the sad part is, is that I think when you're conscious of these things and you realize that people around you aren't or they're complicit, by speaking on it, it's like you're kind of vilifying yourself. It's like you're standing up to the power structure. So it's like you're always going to be at odds. And because I have kids at home that rely on me, that I have to feed, I have to keep my mortgage paid, so on and so forth, to a certain extent, it's only so far I can go, right? When I'm protesting, when they, when they put the curfew and they start tear gassing people and beating people over the head, I go home because why? If I get killed, my daughter's not going to have a dad. So it's like, you got you to gotta do those things. And I think that's the racism that we face in our day-to-day work is that like, we kind of at times, not to say people sell out, because I don't think it's that drastic, but I think all of us may be doing something a little bit differently if we didn't have the burden of making sure that we are, are putting groceries on the table. And, and that keeps us pacified to a certain extent. Because I know me, I probably would be doing 100% activism if I didn't have to pay my student loans for this fancy planning education that I got. That would be my thoughts on, on racism. I could go on and on, but I, I think we can, you have to critique the whole place because we know racism touches everything. It's like the sun that doesn't set. It's in everything. It's in everywhere. Yeah, I can really relate to you on that as it relates to my playing office not saying anything about what's going on. And I haven't brought up anything. I don't have any hope for them to really do much of anything at this point. And a point that I would like to mention was like a few weeks ago, one of my coworkers had passed away and she'd been working for the city for over 10 years. Nobody really knew how sick she was or even that she really was sick, but she sort of died suddenly. And I went to her memorial service and none of the supervisors was there. And I was like, wow, none of them came. And she was black and they were all white and none of them showed up. Doing this whole like Black Lives Matter moment, like her life didn't matter, obviously, because they, could even show their face to her memorial service. Yeah, it is what it is. That's mad disrespectful. That's really sad. But I think that's not uncommon for us to see that type. Yes, we have boundaries personally and professionally, but I feel like when it boils down to the principle of respect, the one thing about our job is we have to be responsible to show up when showing up is really tough for us. I mean, I can't even say, like, the the leadership is hypersensitive in the city of Atlanta right now. We are on red eye. We're wide. We're like, okay, something's going on. And Jordan, I salute you for sending that email because I did the same thing with my team, to be honest. I work in DCP. I will represent city of Atlanta all day, but at the end of the day, speaking out on this is just, it's not just about putting out a statement. 
it's about keeping the momentum of what's going on and how it influences our daily operations and how that's gonna play a domino effect to everything we do moving forward. And we put all these great studies out, all these strategic plans, all these visions of collective impact, beautiful demographics, all of these things. But sometimes when it boils down to it, it's not there. And that's just the truth of it. And I think for, at least on the behalf of the city of Atlanta, I think, not only has our mayor had a wake up call, but our entire division and all of the leadership has spoken out about this. And I could honestly see that I could see something coming forward from this, a new framework, a new design about how we do policies and procedures, what we're gonna be evaluating. Even having a chief equity officer that represents issues like this and how they impact housing policies and things of that nature. Yeah, I can't believe your county didn't make a statement. That kind of threw me for a loop. But I give you kudos for putting the email out and even starting the conversation because sometimes your inner circles in work are your most important circles. And Mm -hmm. those are the people that you're going to interact with daily. And sometimes they're going to spread out and they're going to be in different networks. And because you had that conversation with them, no matter what it would say, no matter what dialogue came out of it, I still think it's impactful because it's not just sharing the perspective, but sharing it amongst each other. You understand that we're more similar than we are different at the end of the day, especially in the planning field. And rest my prayers and condolences to your colleague. Seriously. Thank you for that. So shifting the conversation a little bit, Can you both speak on the importance of playing for multicultural communities? I can talk to that because I think where I am planning, it's one of the most diverse places I've ever worked. Part of that whole corridor south of University of Maryland, international corridor, we have a huge immigrant population, growing Latino population, different types of migrants from all over the world, really, as well as the historical African-American population, so on and so forth. And I think it's really an exciting challenge. I think it, for me, it boils back to that whole cultural competency idea and understanding of having a real planning process, because the challenge with planning for multicultural communities is that you may not understand how to engage them. You may not understand how to make them comfortable when you do get them in the room for a meeting to speak up and and say how they really feel. There's a lot of different things that you have to consider. So I think I was fortunate. I had a, a radical education experience where we believed that grassroots organizing was the way to do the planning process, that engagement with every person was important, that we would go and knock on doors and meet people where they are and even pay people sometimes to participate in the planning process. And that really is the foundation that I operate from my work. I think that understanding that different groups are going to use the spaces differently and then that's, that's okay. But how do you accommodate for that? In some groups, they like to barbecue with music. And some groups, they, they like to have spaces to rent. Some people want to play kick soccer ball. Some people want to ride scooters. There's so many different end users that can occupy a given public space. And it's really a fun 
sociological experiment to figure out how it all works and how it all comes together and where the synergies are and where the conflict points are and how do you plan for that. We learn about these concepts when you talk about planning, like septed and, and stuff like that. Like, how do you design space to be safe? How do you design space for certain things? But I think the cultural component is often missing. And the cool thing that in my work with parks is that, like, it's not hard for us to, if a community has an old park that has tennis courts in it and the population has flipped and it's now 60% Hispanic and they want some futsal courts, like, we usually get that kind of stuff done pretty quickly. It's like, hey, man, y'all got this tennis court out here. We want to play soccer. Can you do something? We go in there, we do it. Other things obviously take much longer and require more work, but I think All the times I could criticize, I think we actually do a pretty good job at responding to the community and trying to help them work through achieving their their goals and their vision for recreational spaces. Obviously, there's always going to be a shortage when you have population growth and limited land base for things like athletic fields and, and major complexes, but we're undergoing a lot of work to try to meet those needs and going above and beyond and doing creative new projects, different types of projects, looking at development of facilities that is on different types of um, land ownership, like rail trails and things of that nature, and working to expand the footprint of resources that's available to the community. So yeah, all in all, that sums up that about our work. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I think one, we need to really recognize that the demographic of our country will one day be majority. Is Minority is majority. It's going to happen. I mean, there's so many statistics out there. I feel like the world is reinventing itself from undoing the past in some energy level. Like there's some like wave happening that we just need to face that the demographic is going to be there in the future. That's one thing that we really do have to recognize. Two, I think I really want to focus on the legislative and policy plan. I want to look at state constitutional level like Georgia state constitution and how their zoning code and development and land use policies are written. I want to look at comprehensive planning and the language that we use that might you there's certain languages used for segregation still protecting or preserving certain things in certain areas looking at that and even looking at the zoning reform for it to see what happens i don't think it's going to be an easy thing to plan for because like Jordan was saying, we all have our way, we all have our transitions and phases of life that we go through. One day we like cotton candy, the next day we want scooters and lollipops running down the street. We don't know what we're gonna get and that's the reality of the planning world, but that's the, also the exciting part where we're gonna get to use not just the aspect of representing multicultural community through the demographic, but we're also gonna be able capable of using the influence of technology and what technology would do good for the planning. And I think the intersectionality between technology and the realization of what our demographic is is going to be, the power to be, I'm not talking about ghosting or trolling or anything like that. I'm just talking about like how technology is going to be a good thing for us and how it's going to influence planning for multicultural division. I mean, I think we all 
Giselle, do you work in a historically black community as well? I mean, there are some sectors that are historically black, yes. Okay, so I guess me and Jordan are the majority, I think 90% of the city of Atlanta is African-American or multiracial <laughs> as of right now. But I don't think that we're at a point where we've planned because just the state of Georgia and what it has always represented. That's why I said, looking at a constitutional level, looking at comprehensive planning, looking at zoning reforms, I think those are gonna help us navigate the future of multicultural planning, I guess to say. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that perspective because the city that actually I live in, I'm actually the chair of the planning and zoning board, is predominantly black and South Florida is heavily Caribbean based. A lot of cultures down here, Haitian, Jamaican, Bahamian, a lot of different Latin cultures. So thanks for that because I know that I do have some listeners from, from South Florida and we have to manage that. And honestly, I think most people here in America are multicultural in their makeup. So I think we all have to consider that when we're trying to plan for our communities. Okay, so wrapping up, do either of you have any last points of advice for those who come from a biracial background in the planning field? I don't think my advice to a prospective young planner or like the young version of myself would be different than advice that I would give to anyone. But I think I actually did this the other day, talking to, to young people in undergrad and grad school about careers. And I think the biggest thing that I really have to offer, which I think we kind of talked about earlier, but I'll bring full circle, is just this idea of moving forward in a way where you're pushing aside fear and you go into environments where you can grow. You go outside your comfort zone. You use radical honesty. You put yourself in situations where you can be the best version of yourself. When I look back on my experiences, I don't have any times where I'm like, oh man, I didn't try this or I didn't try that. It was like, I did everything I could. And I think that's how you are able to navigate life without regrets is to always do those things. I think there are decisions that I could have not made where I would have been like, man, that was this was going on. I really wish I had spoken up or I really wish I had said something. I really wish I had done that. I've been fortunate to where I, I didn't. I always feel like I was advocating for the right thing. And even if I was not necessarily right, you know, I, I was doing it based on what I thought was right. And I think when you are navigating the planning world, it's easy to kind of get pulled in different directions. There's so many different things that you can do. We talked about code switching. I think kind of even more ominous than that is getting pigeonholed or finding yourself isolated in something that's unfulfilling or doesn't mesh with your goals. And I think that if there's always a way that you can pivot or create space to make the work align with who you are. If you're working in transportation, there's an intersection between transportation and environmental justice and, and social justice and all these different issues. You can find it. It's just working your way to get there. If you want to make money, there's paths to do that. Whatever it is that you're setting out to do, understand that there's a way that you can do it that aligns with altruism and things that are good. And ultimately, I believe in the planning profession, it's about improving quality of life for the communities that you serve. 
and not not being discouraged, being an eternal optimist, always work on your relationship building and your listening and finding creative solutions. Um, because I don't believe there's really a straight path anywhere. You have to be um, a problem solver to get things done. And that's what I would leave people with. Yeah. To piggyback off what Jordan said, I would say if one, learn to trust your intuition and both your personal and professional growth throughout the planning world because you're going to have a lot of different experiences and you're going to interact with a lot of people and your intuition is going to be there kicking consciously and unconsciously. So you're going to have to figure out how to trust that and trust that in who you are and who you're trying to become. And then just adding a note to find the intersection of that, of what Jordan was talking about, whether it's planning and social justice or whether it's planning community engagement or community engagement and university planning and public policy, whatever that may be, just find the niche and find more ways that you're in the environment, that you're complementing it rather than complaining about it because it's very easy to get caught up in the realm of the gossip and what's going on or who did this or what did that. But if you find more ways to complement the situation and what's going on into solution-based things, you become more reliable and more confident in yourself. Still follow your intuition. Figure it out, learn it, embrace it, never fold on it. And just know and trust that there is always someone in the workplace that is listening to you there is always someone even when you think that there's not a single person that doesn't care right now there is always someone in the workplace that really really cares and they're probably the empathetic one and emotionally intelligent one of the group so don't be afraid to reach out to that person either so that's my final thoughts probably awesome thank you guys for that so can you guys please provide your social media platforms how can people connect with you Oh yeah, so I'm Krishana Marie Newton on LinkedIn. You can also Google me on the City of Atlanta website for neighborhood planning units and community engagement. I did just make an Instagram, but it's more of a private one at the moment. <laughs> so one day it will be a public planning one. So right now it's just private. <laughs> and then Facebook, if you just want to be a regular person, you just say, hey, that's totally fine with me. The same name as LinkedIn. Yeah, same for me. I'm on LinkedIn and on Facebook. My name is Jordan Exantus. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always open to network and making new friends, especially folks in the planning world. I think that the work that we do accompanied with the training that we receive, it, it lends a specific perspective and, and set of sensibilities. So I always like to connect with planners and uh, commiserate about all the abuse we face in the world. <laughs> yeah, so thank you guys for joining. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to be interviewed in a future episode, please head over to my website at ggtheplanner.com and select the interview tab and you can request to be interviewed by me in a future episode. That's all for today, folks. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Urban Planners Podcast. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over and leave a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast so that you won't miss out on an episode. If you would like to buy personalized urban planning gear and other products or are in need of some urban planning career coaching, please head over to ggtheplanner.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at ggtheplanner. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.